Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast which will help you get to grips with everything happening in France. In this week's episode, we'll discuss the ongoing and worsening fuel crisis in the country, with drivers having to queue for hours to fill up their cars and the French government taking the bold step of forcing strikers back to work. Tensions are running high. Are we heading for a winter of discontent? We'll also hear about the changing eating habits of the French. In the country of Boeuf Bourguignon and steak frites, is meat now becoming too hard to digest for a younger, more environmentally conscious generation? We'll hear about how one of France's most famous Christmas markets is cracking down on tacky products, including, believe it or not, champagne. And the battle against the influence of English words in the French language goes on. Are the guardians of la langue française right to protect the language of Molière against the language of Shakespeare and the Spice Girls? Joining me will be the local France's editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and French politics expert John Litchfield. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Hi Emma, hi Jen, good to have you back with us again this week for another episode of Talking France. Are you two okay? We're good. Been anywhere nice at the weekend? I have, yeah. I had a Go wee, on then. I had a wee trip outside of Paris. Uh, I went to Burgundy over in northeast France, obviously famous for wine. Uh, and I had a lovely weekend wandering around vineyards, tasting wine, tasting lots of wine. Where were uh, you though? Burgundy's very big. It, it is. I was in a little town called Auxerre, which is about an hour and three quarters from Paris by train. So very, uh, very easy to get to. Really pretty little town, like perched on top of a hill, all beautiful old medieval half-timbered buildings, great food. Great wine, as I believe I've already mentioned. Nice place, would recommend. Recommend it to listeners. Jen, did you get out of Paris at the weekend? I did. I didn't go on a vacation, but I spent the day in Fontainebleau hiking with some friends. Um, and it's a very like nice spot to breathe some fresh air and go for a walk in the forest. I wouldn't say it's a, it's like a crazy hike. It's quite flat, the forest, but it's still really nice and it's a good break. It's pretty easy to get there too. You can just take one of the RER trains and so it's maybe 40 minutes or an hour from Gardignon, so it's not bad. Great place to visit in autumn. I got out of Paris at the weekend too. Very last minute decision and I went up to somewhere I've never been before called Le Touquet. Do you know it guys? No, I've never heard of it. I've been there. It's very cute on the uh, north coast. On the north coast, yeah, on the Channel Coast, not far south of Calais. Beautiful, huge beach. Very posh, actually, the Touquet. It's called Le Touquet Paris-Plage, actually, so in reference to all the Parisians who go up there for the weekend. So, yeah, I ate well in a really fancy restaurant, but, you know, the seafront wasn't as pretty as I was expecting. Big buildings, big apartments, uh, big hotels. It kind of made me think of more of the Côte d'Azur than the north coast of France, but it's dead easy to get to. Two hours from Gardenor, get your bikes on the train, you can have a really good bike ride along the coast. So, yeah, highly recommend it. It's best not to stay in Paris at the weekends, guys, isn't it? No, definitely not. You certainly notice this on like Friday nights, the train stations outside Paris are absolutely rammed with people fleeing the city. Right, we should get on to talking about the news and the big story in France this week is the fuel crisis that has been caused by a strike at certain oil refineries and blockades that have stopped supplies getting through to petrol stations particularly in certain parts of the country. Now, this crisis has kind of sneaked up on us. It started three weeks ago, and I remember a guy in our office 
asking me whether he'd seen anywhere with petrol in the Paris region and he complained about having to take the metro into work and I didn't really think anything of it, you know, just get on the metro. But bit by bit, day by day, this has got worse and worse. We've seen images on Twitter of huge queues outside certain service stations on motorways and Paris has been quite badly hit. In fact, Jen, what's caused this crisis? So as you mentioned, we've been hearing about this for the past few weeks and it originally started because unions are calling for salary increases due to inflation and the cost of living crisis. Uh, And they're speaking on behalf of these refinery workers. And basically, the dispute is focused around pay. So the CGT union is demanding a pay increase of 10% for employees to be able to cope with rising cost of living. And another part of that equation is that energy companies like Total and Esso made huge windfall profits after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, certain parts of France have been hit harder than others. Is that right? More so for motorists living in the north, so near Pas-de-Calais, and in the Paris region. Uh, And this is because refinery workers, like you mentioned, have created blockades at factories, meaning no fuel is is leaving the premises and getting to these fuel stations where consumers would be able to tank up. And several of the factories concerned are located in the northern part of the country, hence the greater disruption in that area. Yeah, in fact, when I was in Le Touquet, in fact, the petrol station up there that I passed was totally out of fuel. As I mentioned, tensions have been running high at petrol stations. You know, I've seen videos of fights breaking out. There's been a horrific story of someone who apparently was accused of jumping the queue in the Haute-Savoie region being stabbed by another person in the queue. Tensions are high for motorists. They're the ones who are really affected by this gen. Yeah, so it has been really tough lately. Uh, at the start of the week, over a third of gas stations in Ile-de-France and over half of those in Pas-de-Calais were seeing fuel shortages. So that's a pretty significant amount. And as you mentioned earlier, there have been huge hours-long lines outside of fuel stations. A giant queue for a fuel station near Lille actually stretched all the way out onto the A1 freeway on Monday, and it ended up causing an accident where three vehicles collided. People have had to resort to different ways of trying to figure out whether their local gas station will have fuel. A lot of people are going on social media to see if uh, they'll be able to find a place near them. Um, And even that has been a challenge. So one post on a Facebook group for tips told people that their local gas station was going to be resupplied at 2.30 p.m. But then by 2.37, there was another response saying that they were already out of diesel. And it's been particularly difficult for people who rely on their cars to get to work. AFP interviewed a taxi driver by the name of Jefferson Sandui, and he told them that without fuel, we can't work. And he said that he tried to get to two petrol stations only to be told that there was no fuel left. And ultimately, he just decided to go home. So it's been definitely quite a challenge, especially for those that really rely on their vehicles to get to and from work. Okay, now, as we're recording this, the French government have stepped in to force certain striking workers back to work, essentially, to try and ease the crisis and get supplies through to petrol stations across the country. It's a risky move. And I think it's a good question to put to our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line now from Normandy. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us again. Just before we get into the meaty subject of this fuel crisis, what's the situation like up in Normandy around you in terms of getting fuel? Well, all, nearly all the petrol stations around here have sort of zeros instead of prices up on those big uh, boards they put up in their forecourts. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty well all um, empty around here down in my part of rural Normandy. It's pretty bad around here. And since a lot of people have to drive into work in car, it must be causing a lot of problems locally. I think there are some um, of the bigger petrol stations in car and on the motorways, which are still just about open. But it, this is one of the worst reflective areas. John, as we're recording, the French government is requisitioning strikers, essentially forcing them back to work to eat, try and ease this fuel crisis, which has caused these shortages. How much of a risky move is this? It's it's a kind of it's only the second time this has happened. There was a new law introduced in two thousand and three, which was used in two thousand and ten. Again, 
against refinery workers. And interestingly, they were on strike then to try and stop a pension reform, which President Sarkozy had put forward. So you see everything connects up and nothing changes in France. But politically, you know, any any threat to the right to strike is potentially dangerous. You have people this morning, left-wing politicians like Sandrine Rousseau, saying this could be the start, the spark that starts a nationwide strike, which I don't think is very likely. But it shows that people on the left will try and use this to stir up anger and and macronophobia as we approach what's going to be already a winter of social discontent, partly because of high prices, partly because of Macron's determination to push through the pension reform. So it is a risk, and the government didn't want to do it. They've been delaying for days before they even got really involved in the dispute at all. And I think they could see things were going in a direction which they couldn't allow, essentially, you know, uh, something like 40% of petrol stations out of action in the Paris area, 30% across the country, many people key people not able to get to work like district nurses. So they had to act in some way, whether this is going to actually break the strike or encourage the very, very few workers who are still striking. You're talking about 50 people at some refineries, but enough to keep them blocked. John, so many people are affected, members of the public, you know, who literally are queuing for hours in some cases to get petrol, to get to work. Surely the public would be on the government side to try and break the crisis, but could that change? I think overall they are. And I think there was a strategic uh, announcement the other day by Total and the government of just how much uh, a lot of these workers are earning, suggesting they're on something like 50, 60,000 euros a year and up in a sort of, you know, the higher reaches of, of French industrial workers and therefore implicitly have no reason to complain. And they have been given a reasonably generous offer. Um, it has to be said, they're asking for more. So yes, I think at the moment, I, I don't think uh, public opinion is running in their favour. That can easily change, you know, if there's a sense that this has become not only just an attack on these workers, but an attack on workers' rights, an attack on the right to strike, that it's somehow part of a kind of neoliberal capitalist, uh, you know, attack on workers generally, then even the fact that these workers are relatively privileged won't stop it possibly becoming a wider dispute. It's difficult to know, quite honestly, which way that will go. It's certainly added to the sense of confrontation between this government and the left. We've got a situation where the unions in France are wanting to flex their muscles. We've got contentious reforms on pensions and unemployment benefits, budgets. We've got a, you know, huge rises in prices. Is France facing a winter of discontent with social unrest? I think I think inevitably. I mean, France is always facing social unrest one way or another. You know, it's the country of all the developed countries in the world. It's the one where I think politics goes to the street most rapidly. And there's a big march on Sunday, which is being called in Paris, at least we think it's going to be big, which is protesting against the high cost of living and inflation, even though France has the lowest inflation rate in the EU, I think, at around 5.9%, partly or largely because of government action to stop price rises affecting people. Nevertheless, there's going to be this big demo, which is politically motivated. It's been called by the La France Insoumise, the Mélenchon movement on Sunday. So there's the beginnings of that already there and happening. The militancy of that will no doubt be given a big boost by the fact that the government has attacked the right of workers to strike, as they will say. So yeah, all these things do connect. And uh, you know, the fact that the last big petrol strike was to protect the very uh, sweet pension rights of refinery workers, and that that is coming up again, it seems to me that the two things are not necessarily completely disconnected. And you have strikes going on within the nuclear power industry, where the CGT is also very powerful, where the workers also have very, very sweet pension rights uh, above of other workers. So there is a connection there in the background, which I think the whole thing is moving towards a, a, a pretty 
powerful contestation of what Macron wants to do probably in January, February when things are very cold. Yeah, I think I think we're looking at a pretty uh, difficult winter in that sense. Moving on, Emma, we've also been talking again this week about energy and the subject of turtleneck sweaters is back in the news. It is, yeah. The uh, the stylish cashmere turtleneck sweater increasingly modelled by French politicians have been getting quite a lot of international attention this week. But there is a serious point to this. There's more to energy saving than knitwear. And this week, the government has finally announced its long-awaited plan to cut energy use by 10% this winter, what we're calling the sobriété énergétique, or energy sobriety, energy saving. There was actually quite a lot in the plan that had either already been announced or that local authorities or businesses were already doing. Things like turning down the temperatures in offices, monuments like the Eiffel Tower have had their lights turned out early. But the plan itself, it just kind of brings together all of the energy savings for three sectors of French society, the government, the public sector, businesses and households. And I think it's quite important to note that actually this is not just for this winter. This is the first step of France's pretty ambitious plan to cut energy use by 30% by 2030 and 40% by 2050, which is part of its long-term climate goals. OK, we've got a really useful article on the site which really gives details about what's in this energy plan. But just sum up a couple of the more interesting measures. Well, there are quite a lot of compulsory measures in the plan, but therefore government offices, public offices, public sector workers... And those include things like turning down the temperature in public buildings, in offices, but also in places that you might access, like leisure centres, swimming pools, that kind of thing. Temperatures goes down to 19 degrees. Relaxing the dress code so that we can all wear our natty uh, natty knitwear into work. Encouraging remote working, imposing travel restrictions, and even speed limits on people who travel for work so they use less fuel. Now, for ordinary people, private households, all of these are entirely voluntary. The, the fashion police won't be checking on your jumper this winter. But there are a range of cashback bonuses, like their grants for people who sign up to car sharing schemes, for example. Energy companies are looking at giving you money back if you manage to significantly cut your energy use this winter. And there's also a publicity campaign launching. So we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the weeks to come. Yes. And on the local sites across Europe, we've been writing a lot about different countries, plans in place to save energy this winter. I went swimming this week and the pool was slightly colder than normal. That's one of the measures as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Two degrees cooler is your swimming pool water. Okay. We should move on to who we are talking about in the news this week. Emma, I love the name of these guys or people. The Immortals. Why are we talking about the Immortals? Yeah, Les Immortels. Yeah, the Immortals. Um, just in case anyone worried we've suddenly fallen into Lord of the Rings. These are not actually immortal people, but it is the name for people who are members of the Académie Française, which is often described as the sort of guardian of the French language. There are 40 of them. They're appointed by invitation. Right now they include a British poet and translator, an Italian historian who's also a retired diplomat, and a Canadian academic, although most of them are obviously French. They're mostly writers, academics, diplomats it's an honour that you have to be invited to to sit on the board of this venerable academy and they're they're not immortal uh, as I said but it does seem like their real superpower is complaining about English words this week they've issued another broadside against the polluting influence of the English language on French and this is a pretty regular occurrence I think it's fair to say but what we should say is that the academy has no official power and plenty of people do just ignore them including the actual president of the republic yes Emmanuel Macron has often talked about how he wants to make France uh, le pays des startups or the startup nation but do the academy have a different word for startup in French? Yes, they do. Um, I had honestly never heard this before, but apparently jeune pousse is the official term for a startup and it means a young shoot. You ever heard anyone say that? No, I haven't, but I 
I know that they often come up with French versions of phrases that often get laughed at by French people themselves. We've had Beuverie Express, which is one of my favourites, which is... Binge drinking. Good, yeah. L'accès sans fil à, à internet. <laughs> Just the worst phrase ever, and it is simply Louis-Fi. Louis-Fi, yeah. And uh, Les Amphox, which I quite like, Les Amphox, but that means... Fake news. Yeah, so we've had a few examples. But um, franglais is always an issue, is it not, uh, in France? It flares up regularly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, it's one of these things that, like, you know, certain people are always complaining about, and yet it's just used all the time by ordinary people, including, as I said, the actual president of the actual country. But one place that you do see it a lot is adverts. Although legally adverts must include a French translation of any non-French words, but certainly in the slogans and everything, they often just, like, randomly toss in a few English words. And interestingly, it's used in pretty much the same way that French is used in English language adverts. It's to make your product seem cool, sophisticated, elegant. If you want something like that, you reach for an English word. And one recent example I'm thinking of is the new adverts for Rica, you know, the um, aniseed drink that they love down in the south of France. It's got a bit of an image as an old man's drink, really. And so the company has decided to offer a rebrand to try and make it seem younger. And they've sort of brought out this new poster campaign. And it kind of has two things. The first is the image, which is lots of young, hot bartenders with tattoos, piercing, hipster beards, whatever. But the second is the slogan, and it's a franglais slogan, which is Born à Marseille. Born in Marseille, but in English, because again, they're trying to make it seem young and cool. I don't know whether it's going to be enough to make young people drink Ricard, though. We'll see. We'll see, yes. But this question of the Académie Française and their battle against the influence of English is a long one in France. I put the question to John Litchfield up in Normandy, who's had a lot of experience covering these battles over the years, whether their fight against the influence of English in the French language is futile or valiant. I think some victories they've had, you know, Ben. I mean, people do talk about, say, logiciel rather than software in France, which is a word invented so as to prevent the word software coming into the French language. But uh, there are other areas in which, you know, the English word has triumphed and it's been very difficult to dislodge it. I mean, I have mixed feelings myself, you know. I, I think that um, it's inevitable that sort of some English words for new things should lodge in France as they have in, in other languages. I, what annoys me quite often is the completely spurious use of English in advertising copies. And to make things sound sort of zippy and new, English is just thrown into advertising copy in this country, which often is kind of rather bad English in context as well. And uh, the invasion of, of English by French is often English, which you can't recognise if you're English, you know, I mean, what is le footing, uh, smoking, it's, you know, there are words that sound like English, but aren't, they've become French words of, of English origin, which don't really have the same meaning in English. So it's a bizarre and complex area. I think overall, it's probably necessary to protect the French language a little bit. I think that the Académie Française and others have had some effect in, in making people think about their own language, which maybe we need to have in, in the English language as well, you know, which gets eroded in other ways. And it's time to look around France and pick a spot that is in the news this week. It feels a little early for Christmas, but Christmas markets will be starting up soon. Emma, one of the biggest and best in France 
is Strasbourg. Why is it in the news this week? Well, the uh, the local authorities in Strasbourg have whipped up a bit of a storm because they sent a very long list of banned products to people who've got stalls at this year's Christmas market, which starts at the uh, end of November and, as you said, is, the I think, the biggest in, uh, biggest Christmas market in France. On the list of things that are banned for sale this year in Strasbourg are champagne, tartiflette, raclette, popcorn, donuts and grilled chicken. And on the non-food side, umbrellas, ponchos, baskets, caps and Christmas items for cats or dogs. One local described the mairie as a mairie des dingues, which means like a a town hall full of crazy people for this excessively long sounding list. Okay, why? (laughs) Well, the mairie has said that they're willing to talk about this, so we could see a revision to the list, but basically they're trying to make the market seem a bit less tacky, hence the ban on things like ponchos and pet gifts. And they're also trying to bring back a focus on sort of artisan and local produce. But you mentioned tartiflette, raclette, and even champagne. Champagne tacky? <laughs> no, champagne is not tacky, but it's not local. Stallholders, they can sell Cremant d'Alsace, which is the locally produced sparkling white wine, because as we all know, it's only champagne if it comes from the Champagne region of France. I was reading about Cremant this uh, week, actually, and Cremant apparently was, is bigged up a lot as just a cheaper version of Champagne. It comes from different parts of France are allowed to make Cremant. Do you know any others apart from Alsace? Uh, yeah, Limoux. Uh, Limoux is a really, really nice one good. that comes uh, comes from the south, and it's much cheaper than Champagne, and I think it tastes as good, but I'm not really a, a wine expert. Yeah, there's also Cremant de Bourgogne, Cremant de la Loire, I believe, and there's, oh, I discovered one called Cremant de Die, D-I-E, which you think whoever's marketing that has a tough job on their hands, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I can think of worse ways to die than with a glass of cremo in your hand. Excellent. So, Strasbourg Christmas Market, well worth a visit. When you think of famous French dishes, you think of bœuf bourguignon, steak frites, coq au vin, steak tartare. The one thing they all have in common, of course, is meat. French cuisine is undoubtedly very meaty. But are attitudes in France changing? Jen, you've been looking at some surveys which suggest meat is becoming harder to swallow for many in France. But does that mean they're all slowly turning into a country of vegetarians? Surely not. All right. So this question is a little complicated. I would say that the correct answer is that the French are changing their attitudes about meat, but they are not necessarily ending their love affair and they're not necessarily going veggie. As we know, France is famous for meat-filled dishes, like what's more French than bœuf bourguignon or steak frites or coq au vin. But recently the French have been changing their attitudes about meat. So there was a study by Harris Interactive, this marketing firm in France, that was focusing on French food habits. And it found that almost half of the respondents, so 48% of people said that they had reduced their meat consumption in some way in the last three years. And on top of that, over a third of French households now include at least one flexitarian. A flexitarian is someone who limits their meat um, and they engage in a somewhat vegetarian diet. So they're not a vegetarian, they're not an omnivore, they're sort of in between. And in 2015, only a quarter of French households said they had a flexitarian as part of their home. And in just two years, that jumped to 34%, so over a third. So it's definitely fair to say that flexitarian has been on the rise in the last few years. And then there was another survey by IFAP, which does public opinion polling in France, and that found that in terms of French people's attitudes about meat, they're generally changing. So 68% of people responded that they believe that France consumes too much meat, and over 80% of people, regardless of whether or not they identified as an omnivore, a flexitarian, or a vegetarian, said that they try to consume less but better. 
There was a big controversy in the summer, of course, when one of the Green Party politicians had a go at French men for eating too much meat on the barbecue. I'm sitting here and I'm struggling to think of one French person I know who is actually vegetarian, but I get the point about flexitarians increasing. But this doesn't mean French are all going full on veggie then. Yeah, no, they're definitely not. Vegetarians and vegans still only make up about 2.2% of the total population in France. And in comparison, as of 2022 in the US, that was about 10% of the population that identified as either vegan or vegetarian. And then on the other side of the channel in the UK, vegans alone make up about 3% of the population. So that's more than the vegetarians and vegans combined in France. But the other thing is really the French say they want to eat less meat and more of them are identifying as flexitarians, but they still do eat meat pretty consistently. At least one third of French people eat meat every day and almost nine out of 10 French people eat meat at least once a week. So that love affair is still going pretty strong. Okay, nevertheless, attitudes are changing. Is there a clear reason for it? Is it a certain part of the French population? Yeah, so there are the traditional reasons that we're used to hearing about in terms of people going meat-free. That's the health benefits of eating less red meat or the higher cost of meat in comparison to plant-based products, and then the ethical side, uh, the focus on animal welfare. But there has been another reason that's become more prominent in recent years, and that's the environment. The public opinion study that I mentioned before found that over a third of meat-free people in France were doing so specifically for environmental reasons. So I find this particularly interesting because we're seeing more of a climate reckoning in France. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we were talking about this a few weeks ago, the Paris Saint-Germain soccer team or football team uh, was blasted for traveling by private jet and climate concerns actually came out as more pressing for French voters than traditional topics like crime and immigration. So climate change is definitely uh, one of these topics that's becoming more prevalent in French thinking. And then again, as you mentioned, decreasing meat consumption, it does apply a bit more specifically to a certain part of the French population. So it's not everybody that's thinking this way. The profile is decidedly more female, more educated and more urban. And then when it comes to eating less meat for environmental reasons, that that population is particularly made up of young people. Uh, The study that I mentioned before found that the people that self-describe as omnivores are still more likely to be male and more likely to live in rural or suburban areas. Now, we have many vegetarian and vegan readers, and we asked them recently to share some of their experiences of trying to get a vegan and vegetarian meal in France. They had some pretty shocking experiences, Jen, no? Yes, they have had some interesting experience, to say the least. So even though a lot of our readers had disaster stories about being meat-free in France, uh, like one reader, Chris Welch, who said that he was not happy to find his vegetarian salad covered in lardons. Lardons is basically bacon, yeah? Pork, yeah. yeah meat. <laughs> Which I can understand the frustration of that. And then there was another, uh, Louise Thurwell, she lives in Paris, and she remembered the not-so-pleasant experience of having, quote, prawns in a dish in a so-called veggie-friendly cafe and chicken in a veggie curry in an Indian restaurant, unquote. (laughs) But our survey of meat-free readers from the local showed that the vast majority, about three quarters of them, have noticed that France is getting better about having more vegetarian and vegan options. So even though Miss Thurwell had to deal with some seafood in her vegetarian meal, she did say that France has come, quote, leaps and bounds in the last few years as far as vegan food is concerned, and that even chains offer vegan options now. So our readers did caution that this might be more available in urban areas, that France's progress 
this uh, on providing more veggie-friendly foods might fit that profile that we spoke about before, the the more educated and the more urban um, person. But generally, on the whole, several of our respondents said that they had an easier time finding meat-free food in France in the last few years, though one reader did say it's a different story in small towns. So if you're heading out to the French countryside and you're meat-free, it might be a little bit trickier for you than, say, in a big city like Paris or Lyon. Very interesting stuff. Thank you, Jen. Now it's time for our reader question. And a reader wants to know this week whether fondue and raclette are French or Swiss. Now, Jen, you're going to answer that question for us shortly. But let's just clear up what fondue and raclette are. I think fondue is basically a bowl of bubbling, melting, strong cheese, which is fantastic that you eat with bread. Raclette, I think it comes from the verb raclette, to scrape. It's where you have basically melted cheese on potatoes and charcuterie is a basic simple version. Although lots of people in France have their different versions of raclette. Emma, there's quite a few food rules regarding fondue and raclette. Before we find out whether they are Swiss or French, fill us in a bit more. Yeah, we, we know the French love a food rule. They're both winter dishes, which is pretty logical, really, like a huge bowl of steaming cheese. It's not necessarily what you fancy when it's 35 degrees. And because they're sort of big, hearty, calorific type meals, they're best enjoyed after vigorous exercise. So they're both popular as an ski that, you know, you've worked up an appetite for these. As far as I know, there's not an actual rule on temperature, but I think for me, it's still a little bit too mild. I always reckon like November onwards, once the temperature gets into single figures, then you're, you're good for a fondue or a raclette. Mm, I've already had my first raclette of the season. Oh, you've, you've gone yeah, early. We went early, we went early. Yeah, it was good. I don't think you can ever be too early for a raclette. One of the things we argued about, I think we argue about it every time I have a raclette, is whether you're allowed or should drink water during the dinner. Can you uh, explain a bit this question? Yes, I hate to tell you, but you're at risk of death. Oh. If you drink water with raclette, legend says that the cold water will cause the melted cheese to solidify in your stomach and form an obstruction that could prove fatal. Is that true? Um, it's never actually been proved by science and there's never been a documented case of this happening. But that doesn't stop French grannies telling you this like it's an actual fact. In order to avoid the risk of a, a fatal cheese blockage or at least avoid the risk of being told this story again by elderly French ladies, it's best to drink wine with your fondue. I'm not sure if this is an actual medical recommendation, but a, a crisp white wine, I think, is definitely the best accompaniment. You know, it cuts through the, the fattiness of the cheese and the sort of alpine areas where you're more likely to find a raclette or a fondue. They make some lovely really crisp and fresh white wines that are a very good accompaniment to your cheese i think listeners will be quite happy to hear that i once got into a bit of trouble over a fondue because there are rules about what cheese you put in your fondue and i love a fondue savoyard which is normally emmental conte and beaufort three strong hard cheeses from the savoie region of france i went into my local cheesemonger and i asked for some beaufort and he basically said, that's too good for a fondue. It's really good both for, I'm not giving it yet. And I'm like, oh, is it? Well, I'll have 400 grams instead of 200 grams. I love a strong fondue. And he's like, nah, I'm not giving it yet. We can't waste this both for in a fondue. And I'm just like, I don't want to argue with the French cheesemonger. So I just kind of shyly said, well, okay then. I kind of walked away and it was quite an interesting experience where the customer's not always right. <laughs> in France like this guy basically decided what I was going to spend my money on the Beaufort was like 40 euros a kilo and he ended up giving me a cheese for like 20 euros a kilo I was wanting to spend more money he's like no 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 the cheese is too good 
for your fondue. And I mistakenly sent out a tweet about this experience. And before I knew it, I was in an article in Le Monde. I was getting abused on Twitter. Although I did get a lot of support from the folk down in the Haute-Savoie who said, yes, of course you should have Beaufort in your fondue. In the end, it became a massive scandal. I think it was all in the British papers in the end. And every year there's a national fondue day. And I noticed my Twitter feed goes crazy once again because Le Monde reshares this old article about me. <laughs> And uh, I get more abuse about my fondue experience. But however, I've been back to the cheese shop and I, I've never asked for Beaufort again. I'm too scared. <laughs> but anyway, Jen, it, we really should answer this question. Are they French or Swiss, these dishes? Okay, well, with raclette, it's pretty clear cut. The dish has a well-documented history in Valais, which is one of the French-speaking cantons of Switzerland. It actually first appeared there as early as the 12th century, and at the time it was a peasant tradition, so people would bring their wheels of cheese close to the fire and then wait for the cheese to kind of start melting, and then they'd scrape that cheese onto the plate, kind of like the way we scrape raclette onto charcuterie or potatoes now, although uh, it's definitely a bit more fancy than it once was. And the tradition stayed in the Swiss valleys for many more centuries, but it made its way to France, more so with the advent of ski resorts. And then also in the 70s, raclette machines, that the ones you might be familiar with now, were invented. And that's another way that raclette made its way into French homes. And it is very important to the French now. In 2022, French households consumed an average of 800 grams to one kilo of raclette. Uh, so it's the third largest cheese segment in French grocery stores. So you could say it's, it's a pretty important tradition to the French. When it comes to fondue, before I get into it, I will say, that a study by YouGov showed that the French prefer raclette, at least 71% of them, to fondue. But since some of us at the local here are fondue fans, I'll explain where fondue comes from too. Fondue also appears to have originated in Switzerland, so sadly not French. And similarly, it was more of a peasant dish. It wasn't as much of a delicacy as it is now. And it was consumed with old hardened cheese. Um, it was a way of continuing to eat it, so they would melt it in the bowl, like we said. And it was eaten with stale bread, and it was a way of keeping these dishes good throughout the winter. Months. And then these days, like we said, fondue is definitely a bit fancier, and it is very popular in both the French and Swiss Alps, although there are slightly different recipes depending on which country you are in. But we can say with a lot of certainty that raclette and fondue are both originally Swiss and not French, even though they are dear to French hearts. Wow, there you have it. We are all off to go and have a fondue. We hope we haven't made you too hungry during this week's episode. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please spread the word about Talking France Podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to it. Remember, the podcast is free, but it is funded thanks to members of the local. We hope you have a good week and we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.